Welcome to Rising Titans with Andy Weiss, a podcast that hones in on the process of achieving greatness. In each episode, we sit down with the rising titan of industry and learn about their path to success thus far. We always remind our listeners to keep in mind that it's not about the end result, it's about the journey. In today's episode, we sit down with Alex Afrin, who graduated college with a degree in classical studies and had no idea what would come next. Today, he works as a senior energy consultant, is a passionate advocate of the Jewish community, and is always searching for new ways to grow and improve. We'll hear how he has taken a circuitous path through politics, finance, and energy to end up where he is today. And I don't want to fail to mention, but Alex is a great friend. And uh, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to have you here on Rising Titans. I am beyond honored. I've been counting down this day. There have been several reminders in my calendar. Um, basically, be, for for any <laughs> for any moment, I get to have an uninterrupted conversation with with you, Andy. It's wow. That's what wow. Else well, I, I I equally I equally value value that as well with you. Um, you, you are definitely uh, one of the most passionate, inspiring people I have I've met in my life, and uh, I think you know we'll obviously get into you know you've, you've listened to the podcast. You know we'll, we'll get into where where you're from and, and what you're about, but. I think we would be remiss if we did not thank our, our very good friend uh, and, and recently married friend, uh, Mr. David Sandler, for uh, introducing us years ago now, back, uh, back when I was a, a doofy little uh, 20, 24, 25 year old. Um, I, you know, respect for you being friends with me at that time of my life. You know? uh, well, <laughs> I was, I'm still doofy and still little. <laughs> not much has changed aside from uh, but uh, thank yeah. you, David Sandler. It's like same, same, but but different. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I think that's what it means. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, listen, Zap, is it okay? I call you Zap and on, on the podcast here. Okay, great. Um, for everyone listening, uh, Alex has a, has a variety of names: uh, Alejandro, uh, Alexander, Eliyahu is a, is a Hebrew name. Uh, and, uh, and and Zaf or Zafrin, you know, just a, a man of many names and, and many talents. Uh, and I'm 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 really going to hand it off at this point. I, I want to hear where where are you from, Alex? How did you end up being Alex Zafrin? Firstly, thank you. Um, secondly, I just want to say um, for all those listening, the story of the of the man who's interviewing me is incredible. And Andy, I don't know if you've considered it, but at a certain point. I think that you should have someone perhaps do a role reversal and interview you and have you tell your story mm. because you are in the same way that you've complimented me. You know, we, part of the reason our friendship is so strong is because we have this unbreakable mutual admiration for one another. But I, I know that everyone listening to this knows that, that your story is, is just as incredible, if not more so than, than the others that you've been interviewing. But we'll, uh, we'll start, we'll set the scene. We'll set the scene. It was. I, uh, I appreciate the compliment, but thank you, thank you, sir. It's true. Um, let me take you back to the evening of March 29th, 1991. It was a, it was a spring day in South Florida, not Boca Raton, a little suburb outside called Parkland. Uh, it was also the first night of Passover, mm. and Leslie Zafrin was hurriedly preparing for the guests when all of a sudden an interruption came knocking at the door, and by door I mean a figurative door and uh, well a, a very biological door and several hours later 
it turned out that Alex Zafrin, to be named Eliyahu, uh, rudely interrupted the Passover Seder, and he was born into the world. Um, I grew up my whole life in, in Parkland, which is a wonderful town, um, supported by mom and dad. Mom is British. Um, dad is a nice Jewish guy from Philly, and through a little divine fate, they came together and they built an amazing family. Uh, after me was my sister Emma, but I grew up. I grew up as a kid who, surprisingly, most people when I tell them this, they're they're um, interested to hear it's the opposite from who I am today. But I was a kid who was not confident. Uh, a lot of it stemmed from me not being comfortable physically. I was the chubby kid who would always go into the pool with my shirt on at birthday parties. Um, didn't feel like I fit in necessarily. Of course, there was the cool group at school. And I felt like I didn't necessarily have the experience that I wanted when I was a child. Of course, I was surrounded by love and, and it was amazing. And um, it took me a while to, to finally find myself and come into myself. I, I still am, of course. Um, it was an amazing childhood. Um, but at the same time, I think from a very early age, I was conscious of me and them. And by them, it was looking at the rest of the world. It was me assuming that the grass was greener. It was me looking at the, the guys who were skinnier, taller, better looking, uh, whatever qualities they might have. But from an early age, that was something that I always grappled with. Um, and from there, of course, the story grew. I went to George Washington University. Um, I had fallen in love with politics. For, for a few years, junior, senior year of college, I was, excuse me, of high school, I was very local, or I, I was very active in local politics. I was campaigning, I was fundraising, I was having a great time. Huh. Why, why, like what, what sparked that interest? Like, did you, did you like, like policy or was it more like the people and like you found, you know, I, I mean, I, I definitely relate to what you had to say about, um, about being uncomfortable as a kid. Like I, I was also very similar. Uh, and it's funny cause I, I don't think I ever realized that uh, we were both chubby kids. Uh, I, I don't know if we ever put that together funny enough, but I, I, I had similar, had similar feelings. And I, and I feel like, you know, for me, I, I definitely found eventually communities where I just felt comfortable with people. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like what, what, like what initially attracted you to the, to the political scene? I think a few things there was from the external perspective, this was the first time I was seeing people really be passionate. And I've always gravitated towards big personalities, towards bombastic leaders, towards hmm. excitement and fanfare. And it was really my first exposure to, to people with big ideas. It was, it was almost like, without being without being jaded by the current political scene imagine you were to see politicians get on stage and if you didn't know anything about bickering or some of the bitterness that happens behind the scene what you would see on stage were truly enthused empowered people and i just i saw that for what it was i couldn't i didn't necessarily look beyond that but i saw here were these leaders who were so outspoken about these causes i, I loved it did you did you reach out to their offices or like like did you have a, a connection to them? I'm I'm just curious. Like I, I'm always interested in how people 
find their opportunities, you know, like, you know what I mean? I think my dad, who is, uh, uh, I don't want to say renowned, but he's uh, he's celebrated for his work in South Florida. He is an obstetrician and gynecologist, so he's uh, always bringing life into the world. And of course, he has a very interesting day-to-day job function. Um, one of his patients was somehow involved in general mm. politics and the local political scenes. It's been a while, truthfully, since I've been involved with them, but they're very fast moving and fluid. So you meet one person, they introduce you to someone else, and you talk to this person. And eventually, I interned for um, a representative who was local at the time and then went on to be a uh, congressman in Florida. Um, but to, you know, to go back to the original question, I, you know, I had seen the external manifestation of these people who were so passionate and probably if I really dig into myself internally, there was something about them that I wanted to emulate. Clearly I was reacting to these people on stage. I was seeing their role of really being front and center physically, physically, figuratively, otherwise. And I was thinking, I want that to be me. Um, and I think at the, at the time I, I also had come to learn that I loved writing and I loved speaking. I was never, how, how old were you at that time? I this is probably 15, 16. Yeah. Um, would, you, would you say like you were like, maybe you were a little more in your shell earlier but that, by that time you started to kind of come into your own or, or were you still kind of facing those, those same struggles? Um, you know, cause everyone, I think everyone deals with it in their life. It's just, you deal with it at different times in your life. I think it, it definitely, it's a good question. It did improve meaning my, my self-confidence. I think as I started to lose weight, as I started to come into my own, then I felt that I had a quote unquote right to stand up and, and be me. It almost felt it almost felt like there wasn't a place for me before, but now I felt like it was okay for me to be me. Um, we can discuss wow. it later, but it, it had a there was a negative consequence to that later in life, which is that the the insecurities created an artificial structure of kind of cockiness um, that that later in life I had to deal with. But we we we'll discuss that in a little bit. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll get to it. We'll get yeah, to we'll, it. We'll we'll get to that. But at this time, I was discovering. I think important things. Number one, there were these people out there that had skills that I wanted to hone and that I wanted to, to really obtain for myself, being writing and speaking. And number two, there were these people who had set a path that looked achievable. Um, even if it wasn't in politics per se, they had set a path that was achievable in terms of being outspoken and passionate and really carving a path for themselves in society and, and standing out. And I think that was, that was the, the, you know, existential catharsis that I wanted. I wanted to be able to be on stage and be accepted. That that's really, I'm sure the deepest essence of what was going on in my mind. Interesting. Um, but I mean, you know, at the same time, like, listen, I, I think sometimes you, you have to ask yourself the question. And, and I, I recently, uh, I, I know I was, I, I told you this earlier, you know, I, I was recently uh, involved in a discussion around philanthropy, um, that, uh, uh, an old fraternity brother of mine, he kind of put together this discussion group and it's kind of like, do the ends justify the means, right? Like in a certain sense, it's like, all right, well, your motivation may not be altruistic in going, the, in, in going that political realm, 
but at the same time, you you probably had a lot of opportunity to to, to help a, a cause that you actually cared about as well, um, and and really do good for people at the same time. You know, like it, it's it's not so like it, it's okay to acknowledge that you had selfish intentions and, and motives. I think, I, I, I my part like me personally, I think I think people sometimes just they they're uncomfortable with it, but like that's human nature. You know, like. Not only do I agree with you, but I also think before anyone can give to others, they have to give to themselves. It's that same, right. it, it's that same, uh, of course, you know, lifelong example of you're on a plane, of course, you have to put on an oxygen mask. And the recommendation is always put on your own before the person next to you. And I, I really think at that time, that if I wasn't even comfortable in my own skin, if I didn't even know myself, there was literally no way that I could start thinking about other people. I, 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 shouldn't, I shouldn't say no way because I'm sure lots of people do it. But for my, for my personal mental operation, it was, it was not possible for me to think about assisting others or, or doing, let's say, this good if I myself had not taken that time to, to reflect and really think about me first. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's like the, um, the, like the, the quote by uh, Rabbi Hill from, from the, the, the older times, you know, if I, if I'm, if I'm not for myself, if I'm only for myself, who am I? If I'm not for myself, who will be? If not now, when? Right? Like, you know, it's not. It's not just. It's it's weighing both. You know, you have like I. I think that's a really great point you bring up. Um. Wow. Yeah, that's 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 deep. So you 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 find yourself you're attracted to power in some respect, right? Like in, yeah. like yeah. which 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 is which is kind of interesting and cool. Like I. I, I gotta say, I always, I always kind of admired people at young ages. Like I, I had no idea what I was doing when I was young, but like, like I, like there was no part of me that was like locked and loaded. Like I'm going to be this, like I, I had no concept of that. And, and like, I remember kids would interview intern on, uh, on campaigns and with politicians. And like, I didn't really understand that stuff back, back when I was in high school. Um, so I, I really, I, I think it's, it goes to, uh, I guess, your, your like intellectual development as a, as a young person. Like you really develop that at a pretty young age to have that kind of like interest and like recognition in a sense. Like that's pretty cool. Thank you. Thank you. No, and, and look, I'll say also just the, the nature of politi- politics at the time, um, this was the era of, I guess, McCain-Obama. This was 2008, 2009. Wow. So clearly this was a transformational time in American history. And um, I, was, I was excited because there were all these issues that were out there. Um, I, I felt somewhat of a responsibility to un- understand what was going on. Um, I still remember at the time I was in a high school debate and one of my math teachers asked a question about social security and I blanked out and thank God I was doing uh, this debate with a partner or else we would have lost this debate. And he answered the question about social security. But anyways, the point of that is there were clearly, at this time I recognized there were so many larger than life things that, that were challenging to understand, but made me that, that incentivized me to understand them. Meaning they were out there and I recognized that there were lots of people talking about the complications of the Iraq and the Afghanistan wars, about social security, um, about, the issues that were present at the time. And I, w- I, wanted to, I wanted to try to understand them. I wanted to wrap my hands around them. 
So there was there was that challenge aspect of well, as well. I, I also want to point out that you you were like standing in the front of your entire high school, like that's like just talking about issues, which I, I oh. think most people in that room probably had zero idea about. And to be honest, and, and this isn't a judgment thing, probably have very little idea about today. Like, like they probably still don't know a lot about what you were talking about then. So I, again, just like, I'm not trying to toot your own horn here, but I, I, I do think it's, it's kind of cool that you went from like this, like in your perception of like this outcast, you know, kind of off to the side kid to like front and center and like leading the charge. Like that's, that's pretty cool. Thank you. Well, I will say it was much more comfortable because I went to a tiny Jewish high school where <laughs> there's lots of, there's lots of cushion and support and, and love. So it was definitely not a, not, not as intense as let's say other debates, but it was, okay. that was fun. But thank you. Thank you. I, I, I actually, I don't know about that. They say two Jews, three opinions. So um... that, that probably is true. That is, I would say that's true. Um, okay, so so you 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 find yourself like you're you're wrapped up in politics. You're interning. You're like running the political scene in your in your high school, and and then you start to think to yourself, all right, well, do I like are, are you? Well, I shouldn't say you start to think to yourself. Like I don't know. Like were 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 you thinking about it like from a career standpoint? Like politics could be your career. Like you go work on the hill and. You know, maybe you become a congressman, or you know, you're you're running his, like you're his chief of staff, you're chief of staff. Like, what 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 was what was your thought process? It was all I could think about. Exactly what you said. I had these dreams of either working on the hill or then becoming a congressman, working for a think tank. I remember uh, in the early summer after I got accepted to GW, my my dad would tell people. Oh, he's thinking about you know joining a think tank, and I think that excitement would build the excitement in me. So I, I was almost building up this narrative, this future narrative of what I thought I should slash would be, which huh. didn't exactly work out. But eventually, I started GW. I took one political science course. It was the only one I ever took, and it was it was shocking that I had this realization that I really although I respected the people in it and, and the interests they, they supported and, and the, you know, missions that they championed, I really did not care personally about the material uh, mm. as a professional career. And it was, it was a little bit confusing because I thought here I put all this effort into going to GW. I applied early decision to GW. I didn't apply to any other schools. It was my, you wow. know, it was, it was my one shot Hail Mary um, and it happened to work out, but I remember taking that one class and thinking, well, this isn't really me. Um, and, hmm. and I should also mention at this time, I'll go back to what I alluded to earlier. Now I'm 19, college, feeling a little good, feeling confident, suave, whatever. And because I had had I think so much insecurity with myself. I put on a little bit of this bravado and this facade. And, and I don't think I was, I don't think I would ever insult or, or denigrate people, but I think I was just, I would say cocky. And I use cocky because, you know, it was not me trying to pr prove a point. I was really saying things outwardly to try to make myself feel better about myself. Um, and I think it, it just rubbed people the wrong way. And I didn't, the, the scariest part was that I didn't realize it. 
So simultaneously to me trying to figure out where I want to go professionally, now here I am having this, 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 what will be a collision course, and I don't even know I'm colliding towards something. Did, had, you, had you had you declared your major as poli sci when you went into like? Does it work like that, or, or uh, but like it, that was your intention, right? Like you were like, okay, right. I'm going to major in political science. Right. It was my intention, and I and I hadn't done it. So eventually, here I am, you know, being cocky, unsure where I'm going to go with my major, and eventually, at, at the time, actually, I was working on the hill, and my intern coordinator turned to me and said, Alex, I, I'd said something to prompt this from him. He turned around and he said, Alex, you are so cocky. Wow. And I just, I was dumbfounded. I was shocked. Um, I went home, you know, called mom. I called my best friend Noah at the time. I think I called a few other people and said, Am, is, this, is this me? And they said, no, Am no. Am I cocky? Basically, I said, am, am I, I was, really, it, it was, it was as if I didn't, I had no idea this was part of me. And no, I, 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 I don't mean to make fun of it. Like, I respect the, the real, like, the way you're describing it. It's like, you're, you're processing it. Like, I'm it's sure, very difficult. I'm sure, I'm sure I sounded like that on the phone, by the way. Um, when I, <laughs> I'm sure it was not far from it. No, they're like, so when I asked the question, I didn't get the answer at first, but eventually I asked again, I said, you know, mom, am I cocking? They said, well, sometimes, you know, and it was, it was, it was earth shattering. It was, oh. it was the most existentially important realization probably I've ever had. There was one other one, but this was wow. so, I can't even tell you monumental. I, I think the, you know, the other thing, the two things that scare me were number one, I didn't, I didn't recognize this as a personality trait. And that's why, you know, today I'm so hyper reflective and hyper critical. So I, that this never happens again. And number two, that if I hadn't stopped it there, I'm scared of what it would have become. So I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, I had this epiphany thanks to others um, at age 20. But after that, it took me, probably six months to, to almost like reconfigure, to reset. Um, wow. I had to find this balance between how do you be confident without being cocky? How do you be humble, but not self-effacing? And I, I really, I really had to work at it. Um, and interestingly, wow. around the same time, um, when I had to do some digging about my major, um, I had to declare sophomore year and I was up one night and I was thinking, who, who I, and I was thinking in, in a certain way, who am I? Not exactly, uh, you know, uh, such lofty spiritually, but I was thinking more about myself. What do I care about? What do I want to study? And it was probably 1 a.m. and I was sitting at my computer and I was thinking about, you know, my love for, for words and languages and writing and, and speaking and rhetoric. And I realized that there was this thing called classical studies that no one knew about, that no one cared about, but that somehow it represented everything I wanted to do. And the next morning I wrote an email to the head of the classics department saying, her, her name is Dr. Friedland. Hi, Dr. Friedland, you don't know me. Uh, my name's Alex Afrin from South Florida. I realized I want to major in classical studies. When can you meet? 
And wow. I walked into her office. She had no idea who I was. And there was a huge amount of preparation um, and prereqs that needed to be completed before I could even be considered uh, in the program. And she warned me. She said, you'll have to do this, this, and this. And I, I think I was too excited to say no. And I just said, sure, sure, I'll do it. But that summer and that semester, I had to take some placement tests. I had to learn Latin. I had to learn like basic Latin in a summer. But I knew, I knew this is what I wanted to study. Mm. Um, so I think by the time I came into junior year, I had already had this existential epiphany and, and reawakening. I'd finally found, I'd started to find this balance of who I wanted to be versus who I was. And wow. I had my major. And that was, that, that was like a, that was a, I think a big personal mountain to climb. That was, so, it was, so you, it was I just want, I just want to understand, like, it's the same timing almost like you, you, you find your, like what your, your, your calling is like what you really want to learn about and, and invest your, like, you know, your first like real foray into like becoming an expert in something you're like, want to learn about classics all at the same time while you're, you're coming to terms with the fact that like, you're, you're, you're cocky and like, you have to shift your, your the way you are to, to, to ultimately be successful or like, to, I mean, for it to be successful just to like, like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm describing it right. Like I'm trying to describe it. I, I, I guess like for you, it's like, do you think it was like this realization of like, it's, it, it's deep seated insecurity that drives the cockiness and like almost like what you're saying before about humility, right? Like it, there's a, there's a, there's a balance there where like it's okay to be humble and it's okay to be down to earth and it's okay to be real. And like, it's okay to be comfortable as yourself. Cause like everyone like themselves. It was, it was always about self-acceptance from, that's, from that's a very nice way of putting it. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> It, that that's the that's the bow that that you tie up and wrap around this whole thing. The whole mm -hmm. process was about me telling me I am good enough. I am okay. But to be able to say that in in um in a way that was not arrogant, meaning in a way that I could say that to my to myself, and in no way, shape, or form did it affect my judgment of or thoughts about other people. That that was the that was the important part, and I think that junior year was a turning point um, mm. for those reasons. But, you know, from then um, I, I fell in love with this, with this field. And by the way, for, for those who may not know, classical studies is what the more or less the entirety of the Western world studied everyone up until 150 years ago, everyone. Wow. And, and in some cases people are still learning Latin, but everyone went through learning the same pieces of literature. Um, you know, the Iliad, which is the story of the Trojan War, um, the Odyssey, which is the subsequent story um, of, of the hero on his, on his homebound journey, um, lessons of oration and rhetoric, Julius Caesar, Cicero, how the greats spoke, um, art, architecture, the language of Latin. Um, I chose Latin versus Greek. Um, they're do both, but Rome was, I gotta tell you, Rome was Rome was huh. amazing. Um, it would have been to be to be, well, to be wealthy 
and powerful in ancient Rome. If you were poor in Rome, eh, eh, life was probably not so good. But if you were from the aristocracy in Rome, if you were buddies with, with Caesar or someone from the Senate, it must have been unbelievable. Um, <laughs> you, were, and, you, were, you were popping bottles at all the hottest nightclubs in, in, in the orbs. Right, in the orbs. And basically, you know, you had a private skybox in the Coliseum. You know, you'd have, you'd have uh, everything you desire brought to you in the box. But anyways. Um, and and just, just to clarify for everyone, because yeah. I think everyone should know, orbs is, uh, is it's Latin for city. Uh, and so, you know, in, in ancient times, New York City was not yet a thing. So the city was Rome at the time. Um, you know, it, it is rightfully, you know, moved over to New York City. But um <laughs> But uh, two, two things, Zach. One is I, I, I love that. And I, I, I know you know that I took Latin in high school and I, I, always, I always just enjoyed meeting people who took Latin because I feel like it's a very rare thing. And I actually didn't realize that it, it was something that was just standard curriculum 150 years ago. But another thing, you know, what you said about the fact that everyone was learning the same thing I had this thought and I, I figured why not just explore it here. And, and I'm wondering, you know, your take on it. It's like when, when you think about curriculum and like, I, I guess what, what made me think about this the other day is just like, think about how many friends that I have that have read the same books as me or have seen the same movies. And then, and then I was thinking, uh, I recently watched like uh, Moonlight, which won an Oscar a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And it kind of made, it kind of made me think like, you know, if everyone's watching all of these mainstream movies, and they just become, they're either, they're trendy, they have great branding from the actors in them, the director, right? But like, they're shaping a narrative in your head, right? Like, every piece of content, and you consume, I think content's just like the word in 2020, right? But like, a book, it's content, you know? Like, it's, it's, a, it's a medium for which to gain information. And when everyone's reading the same information, you know, you, you ask yourself, it's like, do you live in a free society where like, are you actually free? It's like, are you like, you're learning a standard curriculum, just like everyone else. You're free to think what you want, but like everyone's going to kind of think within a certain mean if they're watching and consuming all the same things. And I mean, I'm just thinking about it now, but it's like, you know, people, people like to say like, Oh, people who are religious, you know, then they just, all they're reading is, is religious literature, which, it's really the same thing within secular culture. Like, uh, you know, like you, you think all these classic books that you could rattle off, even from the 20th century, you know, that's what, that's what's in, in high society. That's what's in, in culture. Right. And it's the same with classics back in the day, of course, like understanding that stuff. But, but even, even today, like uh, there's a certain, um, there's a certain element of, of just everyone's, thinking along the same wavelength. You ever think about that? I'm sorry if that was a little bit of a rant, but uh, just no, like but you, really you may, crossed no, my head the other day. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about your points. The first thing I'd say is at the time, there was this body of Latin literature and body of Greek literature that was more or less agreed upon as these are the things that, I'm sorry to be sexist, but this, is, this was at the time. This is the thing that a young man should read. I wish it were mm-hmm. women, but it was made, this is the, these are the things that a young man should read in order to educate himself to be adequately skilled, to be a gentleman, uh, to be a functioning member of society. So this was this agreed upon um, corpus of, of, of literatures. This was the canon that everyone did. And I think that was the belief. The belief was if you do X, if you immerse yourself in, in X, you will come out Y. 
And, you know, I'm, I am by no means knowledgeable on educational reform, but I think what's interesting is at a certain point, someone said, why are we, why are we trying to conform the people of today to what was established in the past? Meaning instead of everyone learning this same body of literature, let us progress. Let us think about how else we can broaden the student body, which is then why, you know, as we speak, it's not very common for Latin to be taught at, uh, you know, all public schools. I think um, it's, it's still in a few places, but it's certainly not as omnipresent as it used to be. But my mm. comment to that would be, even if we think about religious literature, we think about what does it mean that an entire people, be it Jews, Muslims, Christians, etc., they've all been raised around the texts of a single set of books. So to, to that point, what does it mean that that is the realm of knowledge that's chosen? And I guess, you know, there, there isn't necessarily a right or wrong, but it's this recognition of because Latin is, Latin is this thing in the past that hasn't moved. It's basically frozen in time. No one's writing Latin. Latin hasn't changed. You can look at it and say, oh, these are the things that were, that were used at the time. So people can always go back to it. Mm. But now the question is, are the, what else do we need to be modern members of society? Wow. wow. Just, but I, I actually, it's, it's a very interesting point. And, um, you know, my, my only soapbox is that more kids would learn to, I think, love grammar and words and feel more comfortable writing if they could do, I don't know, coloring books of Julius Caesar and, <laughs> uh, and uh, grammar, oh. exercises, grammar exercises with Latin and gladiators. Uh, um, so that, so. that is that is amazing um I, I i really appreciate that tangent um i, I really do like i love i love getting into those deep thoughts but um i i, I do want i do want to get back to more like your trajectory and your growth because i think it's yes. extremely interesting um and and i i do want to highlight for everyone um you know there there is a reason that you are probably saying to yourself i don't think i know any classics majors and uh, the reason is that most of them have their heads buried in a book, um, unlike unlike Mr. Zafrin, uh, who who clearly was standing up in front of them in high school. Um, and I'm sure you'll get to it in, in a moment about when you graduated uh, college. You know, in terms of of you know putting yourself out there and and really being a very unique person in that way, where you have this in, it very deep knowledge base and appreciation for art and history. Um, but, you know, I, I, I would say almost thinking about it from what you said before, you kind of, you, you kind of almost channeled your, your, like your, your, your cockiness into this almost, it seems like where like this became the vessel of like, you were, you're obsessed with it. And like, you became so comfortable with what you were doing and like you just started actualizing it seems like like that that to me would be like i don't know what you think but like just hearing it from from you like it sounds like that's the point where you really started to actualize like you were really self-aware and you you just started that's when you became an adult everyone has at different ages but like that that to me really seems like a pivotal moment there it, it was. I think you're you are right on the money with that assessment. It was this combination of having this field that I loved, that I recognized I I could apply to future things. And I said that because at the time I didn't know what I was going to do as a classics major. I knew I was not going to be a professor, but I knew I, I I could take these skills and apply it. And also, really, that you know that self acceptance that I 
was so craving from my teenage days, I start. I think I started to get. And the part, and the thing that was critical at the time was that I didn't need to be cocky to feel accepted. That wow. that was the most important thing. That I didn't need to do this outward display of who I was in order to feel comfortable and self-assured. And that that was the moment when the loop closed and when I was able to finally finish that chapter. That's how mm -hmm. I knew that I'd come to terms with it. So I, it's, you know, it's still very much in my mind and I think about it as if it were yesterday. But when I could find, wow. and, I, and I actually, I, I thank you for bringing in classics because I don't know if I'd ever thought about classics and helping to, to finalize this, this period in my life, but I think it did. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious because, you know, you, it seems like your dad was very happy that you were going to GW, you were going a political route. He's like, oh, my son's like going to be like a big macher in D.C. Like, well, like in a good way, like, he, you know, there's a there's a term for, for those listening in in, uh, in, in Yiddish to, to Shep Nachas. It's like a, it's, it's a it's a very uniquely understood phrase, but it's, it's really just to like to have to be almost like to be glowing with pride like that that's like the, like I think the idea it's like like you're like as a parent you're just you're so proud of your your child and and I think it's very difficult and I see it a lot with people where they're trying to live out their parents dreams of what of what they want for their kids um, which obviously they want what's best for their kids and in their mind they think it's best but you know did your dad or your mom for that matter did, were they were they a little weirded out by the the classics major they're like how are you going to get a job how are you going to survive you're going to be a poor starving artist like it, you know what 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 was their what was their feedback from from the, the decision to be a classics major and not go into politics so i am extraordinarily lucky obviously to be the the son of leslie and bruce for for several reasons <laughs> number one because they really did, from, from day one, I could have said I was gonna study pottery. I could have said I was gonna, I don't know if, what they would have said if I was gonna be like a, a exotic dancer, but they probably would have supported me. But <laughs> really when I, when I said I was gonna be a classics major, they were so fully behind me. They didn't even bat an eye. And I should mention, it was also easier because both of them were English literature majors. Um, wow. so okay. I'm, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that went far, but, I really, I really had this, again, the confidence, not the cockiness. I had this, this confidence that I would find a way to apply these skills. I knew mm. it taught me how to write, it taught me how to speak. And I didn't know what the right application was yet, but I, I knew it would come. I had faith. Wow. Um, I want wow. to see, uh, I, I'll briefly allude to what you spoke about. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to make a whole thing of it, but the, you know, the, the celebration, the cherry on top of this cake was there was a competition for all GW students to give the student commencement address. And it was open to everyone. And in, in, these, in these opportunities that are high return, low risk, meaning the worst thing that happens is I get rejected. The best case is that I get accepted. I thought, eh, why not? And I also thought to myself, considering there's a graduating class of 5,000 kids and there are five classical studies majors. I'm pretty sure, including myself, I'm pretty sure no one else is going to make a speech about ancient Rome. And I thought, all right, let's make this fun. 
And that was, that was the theme that I worked with when I decided to apply. And after submitting a video and after being called in as a finalist, it was the mate, it was one of the highlights of my life to, to give a commencement speech at GW, wow. um, which was, you know, beyond memorable and, and, um, wow. It, it represents, I think it represents really when we look back at the beginning of this conversation, um, when I said I had seen those politicians, I'd seen those people standing on the stage and I wanted to be like them. This was really the first time I got, I got to do it. This was, this wow. was, this was it. This was, this was what I had been thinking about for at the time, who knows, 10 years. And finally, um, that's amazing. That's amazing. I, 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 lo I love that story. And like, you know, I mean, we've, we've, we've been friends for a long time now, but I, I didn't, I didn't, I would have never put that together. Um, I, I really, I love, I love that shift. And I, I also think it's, it's really like a great lesson of like, sometimes you think you want one thing and like you, you clearly wanted a certain validation, but like almost what you were, you were looking for was just like, what, what are you good at? Like what makes you happy? Like what, what puts you in that flow state? Yes. Um, and, and you kind of, you, you, you set your sights and what's impressive is like, you were so focused on it and that's what got you to the point. And it's not like, and then you could have been like, Oh, I'm at GW. Like, should I transfer? Like I, I, I'm not doing what I thought I was doing. Like you, you could have, you could, and coupled with like this big smack in the face about cocky, like being too cocky. Like you could have been like, I failed here, but instead you flipped it around and you pivoted yourself and followed your passion. But like you needed to go through that failure step to find your passion. Like that's, that's a great story, man. That's really awesome. Thank you. Thank you for look, thank you for asking me about it. Um, I, yeah. I now, you know, I, I talk about this. I talk about this as much as I can, not, not the speech part, but more just the self-awareness part, because it was so, I, I don't, I, it scares me to think who I would be without it. It really does worry me to think where I would be, what I'd be doing if I hadn't had this realization, because it was so foundational for me, really, as you said, to be, an adult, I, I, it was, it was the pivotal piece of my maturity into an adult. Wow. I, I respect it. I, I also respect it from the standpoint of, I don't think I had that kind of presence and maturity until my late twenties. Like I, I, re I really don't. Um, like I think I had that, like a similar kind of almost, I call it like track, like where, where I, I went through that similar progression but it happened later in my twenties for me. Like I, I obviously had plenty of personal growth throughout the years, but like that level of maturity, I think that you showed, I really didn't have for, for many more years. Um, and I'm I, honestly, I, I don't, I think plenty of people struggle with it their whole life. Um, I, I think, I think you're fortunate if you can, if you can develop that awareness. Um, I, I feel, I feel very fortunate because I, I, I see people struggle with it. Um, Thank, really, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, look, also, by no means is, is this finished. I'm sure that there oh, yeah, are, I'm sure there are going to be further earth-shattering lessons along the way. Hopefully, you know, <laughs> hopefully not not ones that made me feel exactly you know that that sense of lost. Yeah. Well, 
but um you may, you may you may you may you may crave that sense of of loss at some point i think you know like once you get too comfortable I like um but I but i guess that. speaking of of being comfortable or i guess maybe uncomfortable it's like what what happens when you graduate from college as a classics major like what what do you actually do unless you want to like you know bend down with a magnifying glass in front of a britannic encyclopedia but if we were in the 19th century that is what i would be doing i'm sure it sounds good um the truth is i graduated college surprise surprise no job i interviewed for probably a I would say 10 different places before I graduated. And I was, I had been interning um, at a few different firms, also in the business world. I, I had had this recognition that I wanted to move over from politics, you know, away from politics at this point. Um, I wanted to take these things, these two things that I found I enjoyed and that I was good at, which I think is important professional cross-section, what you like and what you can do well, which were mm. for me writing and speaking. Yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to apply them to something in, in, in the business world. And I said business world because when I wrote my cover letters, when I wrote my applications, that's what I said, business. I, it wasn't specific. I, I, just, I just thought of it as this amorphous cloud of people buying and selling things. I really had no idea. Um, not a clue. I took like a, I think I took one financial accounting course and a micro, uh, excuse me, a um, uh, accounting course um, entrepreneurial economics course, but that was it. I, I took one or two of those courses, but I had no idea what I was talking about. Um, so for a few months when I was, I came back to Florida and I was working for my best friend's dad's real estate company who, um, if you're listening, I'll send it to you, Jack Miller, if you're listening. Um, Jack Miller was an amazing mentor who, who, you know, built himself up and built his own real estate lending company. In South Florida, still doing well. Gelt Financial, shout out. Um, Gelt, Gelt Financial. Gelt, Gelt Financial, you can look it up. He's still uh, lending. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, why? Like, you should introduce us. You're right. I guess we've never talked about this. All right, uh, to be continued. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, if 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 we do a deal from this podcast, that will be that will be a great story. Wow. That'll wow. be a great story. Uh, I, wow, this is an amazing. All right, I definitely. I'm a, I'm a mortgage broker, man. I, I I love being lenders, and especially ones with names like Gelt Financial. Like <laughs> that is that is just amazing. This will, by the way, this this connection, it, you know, it, it would bridge both worlds. You know, my Florida world and and New York world. That would be amazing. So, well, this this will be great food for thought afterwards. Um, That's amazing. So, you know, I had an amazing time working at, at Gelt. Really, I think I was learning about real estate. I was learning about mortgages, but. I, at the same time, I didn't even know what a mortgage was. I didn't, I didn't know what a yield was. People were talking about interest. I was like, interest in what? Interest on what? I just, I was, I was, I was sprinting before knowing how to crawl. Um, and eventually, I realized that this was a problem. And you know, Noah is is still my you know, uh, longest best friend. And of course, I'm so close with Jack. But I think at a point, I told him that you know this company is amazing and I, and I love this, but I I where am I? I need to go back to major basics. So I stopped working at Gelt and for probably two, three months, I sat at my dining room table, applying to jobs. This is now the summer. Um, two, three months applying to jobs, rejection, rejection, rejection. Reading as much as I could, Business Insider, Wall Street Journal, trying to teach myself the beginning of business, having conversations, LinkedIn, everything and anything that they tell you to do when you're looking for a job. 
And it went from being the shotgun approach to really trying to narrow down to, to all right, I know that I'm good or, and I know that I enjoy writing and speaking. I, I know that there's this field of knowledge in finance that I want to understand. But I knew also that there were certain types of jobs like uh, in, you know, investment banking or private equity that weren't as appealing um, and that probably, quite frankly, I would not be successful at because of the, the mathematical requirements. And I was okay with that. But after lots of applications, I finally made one connection to a GW alum who worked at Bloomberg. And it turned out that they had a program for entry-level analysts. And it was one of the first ones that I saw that really did not put um, a premium on finance or economics majors. So immediately I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe I'll have a shot. Maybe I can actually do this. Hmm. And the interview processes, the conversations were not related to finance. I remember I had applied to one firm and it was one of the later rounds. And, they, and basically, the question was, what was the cause of the Great Recession? Uh, wow. I, let's, let's just say I knew I was not going to, at that time, I knew I was not going to get to that firm, and I did not. But this, this company, Bloomberg, did not focus on the financial acumen beforehand. They really focused on raw skill. And I, will rem- I remember my, my interview, my final round, and the guy across the table from me, very nice guy, I could see he was not exactly convinced. And, and it, you know, it was, let's say it was going well, but it was not an amazing interview. And I basically said to him at the end, I know where I stand. In a nice way, I said, I know where I stand. I know my skill sets may not be and are likely far from what some of the other applicants have. But what I, what I come here with is willingness to work ability to write and a desire to learn and wow. I want, and I want to prove myself to catch up I love that and and I knew that really really that was that was my pitch that was who I was that all I could offer was the 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 determination and that youthful hope and I walked out thinking well 50 50 give it my best shot we'll see what happens and they called uh, and they, you know, they gave me the offer and I moved to New York January, 2014, had an amazing time at Bloomberg, really an, an, an incredible company with incredibly smart driven people, fun as well. Um, and mm. they taught me everything. They, their, their in-house academic program for finance was the finance degree that I never got, but always wanted. It was a lot of tests. It was intense training, but it, it taught me, I think really the most important thing that I speak about with some of my friends is it really gave us a sense of the financial ecosystem. I didn't mm. get what it meant. Here's a bank, here's a hedge fund, here's a company, here's a trader, analyst, CEO. They're all over here. What are they doing? How do they talk to each other? Why are they talking to each other? I didn't, I didn't, get, I didn't get the web of, of interactions and Bloomberg navigated it and Bloomberg made sense of it all. Um, that's amazing. It was, it was extremely important also for me to discover what became my current love, which is the energy world. Um, hmm. I was thrown in. I had a boss who said, Alex, I, I'd li- I think you'd be good at, at the commodities markets. And I said, okay, what's a commodity? <laughs> uh, um, 
Didn't know. Uh, this, this is at Bloomberg. This is at Bloomberg. Okay. And I said, okay, um, let's give it a shot. And together with him, with training, I fell in love with this world of tangible assets, oil, gas, electricity, um, things, really things you could touch as opposed to for what for me felt like, um, you know, the world of equities, bonds, they were, again, you know, more mathematical. And I think I was probably more frightened of them and I, mm. and I enjoyed them and ultimately had to learn them. But for me, there was something, I guess, that excited me and probably was easier to comprehend about these physical assets. Um, that's, so, that's so interesting because I, I feel like, you know, I, I almost had a similar experience to you with my first job and like, really? I also came to that same realization of like, I like real estate. Like I like the physical tangible assets. So it's, it, it, there's an interesting parallel there. Um, it, it, I, I agree with you. There's something, I mean, there's something refreshing about it. I loved that it was, it was physical and tangible. Um, and you know, eventually there was a time when I realized here, here's this thing that I, I can't stop thinking about. I, I want to understand how energy markets work. I wanted it to be even more tangible. I understood what it meant that here were these barges going you know, doing trans trans oceanic journeys, carrying crude oil, liqui liquefied natural gas, um, and they were going to to different purchasers. But I didn't get who was who was touching it, who was using it, where did it really go? Like when you, mm. when you purchased electricity, where 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 was it going? Where did it come from? And where does it? How does it get to where it's going to go? I didn't see that from Bloomberg, not for fault of Bloomberg, but just because you know the world of finances is. Um, a little bit more macro and you're, you're thinking about this at the corporate level rather than the actual consumer level. Um, and I also wanted a career mentor. I wanted to work with someone. If we draw back to the original example from this conversation, I wanted to, I wanted to see someone who was not necessarily on that stage as a politician, but I wanted to see someone who represented what I could do or what, what, was available. I want to role, oh, you want a role model? Like, yeah. right? like that's, a, that's, a, that's a great that's a great idea to have. I wanted a role model, and I eventually, through a friend, uh, found a connection to a tiny energy consulting firm in Brooklyn. And I remember at the time I was looking for other jobs, and I was uh, interviewing at, at a hedge fund. Excuse me, and I, was, I went onto this call thinking, you know, the hedge fund's going to be amazing, but I'll oblige this guy. I'll, I'll let him talk about this tiny energy consulting shop. And never in my life had I spoken with someone who ran a company, who grew it from inception, and who, who loved it so dearingly. I'd always spoken with, of course, people in HR, people who were in, in sales and, and I guess midway up through the executive chain. I'd never spoken with a founder. I didn't know what it meant to, to speak to someone who had really created this and came from, came from the beginning. And here was my current boss, my now current boss. And I, I will say it was this without, without uh, knowing what it's like to be married. Um, I had this jolt and thought that this, this is who I want to work for. And I, wow. got off, I got off the call and every other professional conversation I was having with the hedge fund, with other firms, just melted away. And I knew this, this opportunity to learn from him, to be in this world that I care about. And by the way, the focus of the firm is energy consumption for real estate. So it was the answer to the question that I asked. 
where does the energy go? Who's using it? These are the, the corporate, um, and I would say the, the commercial users and purchasers of, their ener of this energy that's distributed and created through the national power grid for their properties across America. Um, and this, mm. this would help me get that final insight into where the energy is going and how it's being used. So together with that role model, um, together with the opportunity to be on the ground floor of this nascent industry, which is so exciting, I knew after the politics, the Latin, the writing, the speaking, the hours at my dining room table trying to learn finance, the, the years learning about commodities at Bloomberg, this was the next step. Huh. And, and it has been since then four amazing years with Mitchell uh, and our team, Aurora Energy Advisors, which for any of those listening in real estate, if you have any if, if questions about your energy or how you use it or how much you spend, most importantly, has ever occurred to you, it's a conversation we should have. Um, I, I, I will actually jump in on that and say that if you are an individual and you are worried about your energy consumption, you should also talk to Alex because <laughs> Alex has helped me in numerous occasions and I recently had a bill. I'll, like, it, was, it was actually pretty crazy. Like when I, when I sent you that bill, I was like, this seems really high. And, and, uh, and Alex called Con Ed for me and uh, he got my bill reduced. They were like, this was an error. Um, and, and it was really kind of eye-opening to me, just like that whole process and, and realizing how energy gets provided to you. And I, I, I give you credit because I, I feel like, again, like the same inquisitiveness of like, what, like where are things coming from? Like, like again, it's just like, I, I feel like the best, like I love, I love how you kind of, like you were so thoughtful about classics and, and you were so intentful like the intention was there of like, I know that I'm building a skill set that will be valuable. I don't know how it will be valuable, but it will be valuable. And you kept that going, right? And like you just you followed the 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 inquisitiveness of an intellectual curiosity you had of like, you know, how does this work? And and you you taught yourself the thought process, like you learned how to learn. And and I think I think what you highlighted before it was like that whole conversation on education that that's missing a lot in America, I think today and, and in the world where we're, we're not teaching people how to learn. And, and I think I'll, I'll give a shout out to Bloomberg here. And, and I think, you know, GE is a similar company. I, uh, one of my, one of my other best friends, uh, Lauren, Lauren Goldstein, she, she worked at GE out of school. And I would remember she would, she would have all these tests all the time and like class on the weekend. And I, I was like, that's intense. Um, that's like really intense. You're out of school, but, it allows for someone like you who didn't study something that's vocational in, in college, really, I think using your time wisely and like exploring your interests and your passion, um, it allowed you to kind of pivot. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I would, I would almost hope that more companies kind of take this on and, you know, I, to, I'll give to PwC's credit. They, you know, I started there for five years and like they definitely had a good amount of training. A lot of it, was kind of bureaucratic and not relevant to what I did, but there was a definitely a high emphasis on credentialing. So like I took the CPA and I took the CFA, but I don't think I had that realization that you had as early on about this, like 
I don't know how it's going to be useful, but this will be useful. Like I, I kind of knew that, but I feel like you really had this sense of like, I, I like you almost had a sense of like, I know what I'm doing. That's what it seems like at least. And, and, and knowing you, I, I actually, I, I think that's what it was. Like I, I, I really, I, I have a lot of respect for it because it's very tough to, to, to take a leap like you did and you, you've continuously done, I think throughout your career now. Uh, and, and, and just know that like take the step like and again like i said i think it happened to me later in my 20s when i moved into real estate and i was like let me take that step you know i i, I was scared for a while and I, i'm curious like were you were you scared when you when you left bloomberg or you know i i was scared up until the time and you know as you're describing your relationship with mitchell like when i met andrew dansker who, who obviously you 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 uh, and we'll, we'll get into this in a second who you've become uh, great friends with as well um, through through a different avenue. But um, when I met him, I had that similar kind of realization. Like, here's a guy that I respect, and I I I see like this is this is like the right path. You know, like I wasn't scared anymore. It felt it felt right. But like, how long did that take? You? Like for me, it took at least two years to to kind of come to that realization. Like I was that I was ready. And then I met that person who I was finally like, okay, during my interview process, like, all right, this is it. But like, how long did it take you to, to come to terms with like, I want to leave Bloomberg and then to actually leave? Probably took about six months. And I was, when I started, when I started the search process, I, I wasn't, I wasn't searching for the right things. I was, again, I, I, I didn't start with the I didn't start with the right question. I didn't start with the question of what is this thing that that I'm good at and that I like to do. I had forgotten. It's almost like I, you know, I'd been running, so to speak, so long that I'd forgotten to go back to the basics. So when I started this job search, I started again almost. It's silly when I look back at. It, I was thinking, oh well, maybe I'll apply to these these hardcore finance jobs at. A different, you know, asset manager. Maybe I'll be a research analyst. And eventually, I think I was looking at, and I thought, what, what am I doing? I already learned about myself many years ago that this was not, you know, this was not the right field. And what was I looking for? And at the time, mm -hmm. I, I think I was just trying to keep up with probably external expectations. And then I reminded myself, you've already, you've already charted, you've already told yourself these things that are important to you. So why are you, why are you veering off? Let's get back on. So eventually, when I got back on. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't scared of leaving. I think my only, my fear truthfully was, was languishing at Bloomberg, not because it was by any means a bad position, but it was just idea that I felt I had learned all, all I could from this company and I didn't necessarily want to progress at the firm. So I didn't, I didn't want to be stuck. I need, I needed to, I needed to move and I needed to get that feeling of discomfort again, of learning. Um, and uh, I had a, I had another, you know, another life mentor, a, a very interesting, quirky, irreverent, but brilliant woman tell me in a nice way when I had shared with her, I was thinking about different consulting firms and asset managers. She said, it, again, very respectfully, but seriously, so you're telling me you're going to apply to firms with tons of other white Jewish kids just like you with the same skills. And I kind of half laughed, but 
looked at her in a puzzled way and she, and she followed up by saying, you should be looking at firms that really need you. And I don't mean you as a white Jewish kid. I mean you, Alex Zafrin, with the skills and the things that you've told me that you care about. Mm. And from that conversation, I realized I was going about it all wrong. I was trying to think about, oh, where can I, where can I fit in? And the question she challenged me to think was, where, where could I help? And I hadn't thought about it like that. And, wow. and with Aurora Energy under Mitchell, it was this small company, but they didn't necessarily had, have someone who had come from a traditional finance background. They didn't necessarily have someone who was used to client-facing meetings of all kinds, be it you know, the, a low-level intern or an executive, and who enjoyed those. And I thought, this could work because I like doing those things and they don't have that as opposed to a larger firm where, you know, being honest, there are lots of amazingly talented, smart kids who could easily fill those functions. And I would just be another white Jewish kid. And wow. you know, the, the, the epiphany in that was amazing. Um, and I'm still in touch again with, with, with her, um, you know, because for someone to say something like that in my life, you can't, you can't discard a person like that. When someone, no. When someone tells you something so revelatory like that, you got to keep them in your, in your life forever. Uh, and she's, she's, yeah, she's hilarious and she's a lifelong mentor. Um, it is, it's been, it's been an amazing experience. Um, it's really just beginning. I have to keep asking myself all these questions. What am I doing? What do I like? What am I good at? And now the, you know, the, the question that I think I've also been asking myself for the past few years, ever since having been comfortable with, with me, is how do I help others? Um, mm. I know that that's something I, I didn't really do when I was growing up because I had to think about myself. But the aspect of my life that is equally as important as my professional growth is my spiritual growth. And that spiritual growth comes through activity in the Jewish community uh, and really finding ways to feel those who aren't included or excuse me, to help those who don't feel included to feel included, to help bring them into the fold and really get the same kind of acceptance that I got for myself, but for them to achieve it on their own. Wow. I, I, I love that. And I, I, I recognize that in you. And I, and I think when, when we met, we, we both kind of recognized that in each other of like the, the drive to kind of help other people as well in our lives. And, and I, and I, I it's crazy. Cause like, I don't think I really realized how many parallels we had in our lives uh, until this conversation. Cause I almost think to, to what you were just saying, it's like, I also wasn't so involved in high school in any organization really. Like I, I I wasn't a leader in anything. And, and I think it comes down to what you're saying of like, you have to find yourself and, and be comfortable with yourself and, and really clear on who you are uh, before you, you're really okay and able to give to others. Uh, it's almost like an incentive of like getting crystal clear on who you are and, mm. and constantly recalibrating that. I, I respect it. And I, you know, I alluded to it before, but you know, when 
when uh, when I had just started with 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 working with Andrew, um, he mentioned that he was he was thinking about joining the board for the Hebrew Free Loan Society, their young professionals group. And I was like, oh, you got to talk to my buddy Alex. He's going to be the president. And I, I I'll never forget like he just like you and him just kind of hit it off, and he he got so involved and he's so passionate about it. Um, and I think obviously our business is focused on helping connect borrowers and lenders. So like the idea of um, helping provide interest-free loans um, and I'll, I'll let you kind of give more of a, a background in a second on, on HFLS, the loan society and, and all the work you do. But uh, you know, it, it, it was a cool opportunity for him to give back in, in that respect. Um, but, but you really, I think helped bring him into the fold and um, you know, Andrew would be the first to tell you, like, he doesn't always get along with everyone. Like, like you, you and him kind of hit it off. So, I, you know, I, I think you, you have a good way of engaging people. Um, and and, uh, and I, I, I appreciated that personally. So, Well, look, you made an incredibly important introduction for me um, to, to be able to bring Andrew Dansker into the organization. He's been, I, I am so happy he's part of this organization. Um, and for those listening, Hebrew Free Loan Society is an organization that started in 1893 when Jewish immigrants were coming to Ellis Island, really didn't have much cash. They were selling socks, matches, trinkets, etc. And they formed a society to lend each other money, simply, without interest. And that was the big key. For these Jews to really give micro loans, small loans to one another, really knowing in good faith that they would get paid back. They've made it through World War I, the Great Depression, World War II. They are now doing so much amazing work during the current situation we're in because they were one of the first organizations to rush and create an emergency loan program for those impacted by COVID. So, you know, the organization for me, it was appealing because it, it fused these two lifelong interests of, of the business world and Judaism. And by the way, I was introduced to it through a colleague at Bloomberg. I'd never heard of the organization and I think a lot wow. of people haven't. Um, but you know, the, the best part of this work is that not only is the money zero interest, but it's just recyclable. So when the organization loans to someone who doesn't have enough money to start their business, the money that they're getting is literally a loan repayment from another business owner or family down the street who's repaying a loan that was used to send their kids to school or to pay for another business. And the money just keeps moving back in circles. And that, that's the most beautiful part. So as the, really loan, as the loan pool keeps growing, more people keep benefiting. It's, it's, it, it's so funny that it's just, it, it defies logic that it's, it's so simple and it's such an amazing idea, but the organization is one that I'm so passionate about. And there are chapters throughout the country. Um, also, there's a huge one in Israel, but the concept is simple. The, the concept is, even though it's called the Hebrew Free Loan Society, it's not just for Jews. It's the one in the one in New York is for all low income New Yorkers. And the idea is really the highest form of charity is to give to someone to the point that they no longer need to ask. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the the highest form of charity, is, uh, I believe it's, uh, it's a, there's a great rabbi, Maimonides, um, and, and he, that's what he said. Like he, he said the highest form of charity is helping someone else make money, right? Like almost helping, like helping teach someone how to fish. Yeah, know? yeah. Like that's, that's, that's amazing. I love, I love the mission statement. And I also, you know, I, I think we're both obviously very, we're very active in, in the Jewish community. Um, and, and I think that's really a product of, you know, we, we, we were brought up as, as Jews in America. Um, and, and kind of that's, that's how we, those are the relationships we grew up with. Um, I actually got more involved. I didn't go to day school. I wasn't really involved in Jewish community so much and wasn't so active in my synagogue, but like, I, I found, I found kind of, a, I guess like the, the personal benefits of, of communal life in, in college in a sense of like that, that feeling of, of belonging, but also like, the, like really seeing the power of it and like the power of, of organized community. Um, and, and I, and I, I really think that encouraging people to engage in communal activities no matter what community that is, like you could have a community around a religion, around a sport, around, around whatever it is, but like building up though, that infrastructure, um, which I, I think the Jewish community really HFLS is a prime example, but has been doing for, for generations, you know, there's like a, there's, there's like this inbred idea in that's imprinted in us generation after generation to, to give back to give back to others, but, but to give back to the world um, and, and to really like, you know, adv advance society um, in, in certain ways. Um, and and I, I think it's extremely powerful that you guys are continuing on that legacy with, with that kind of work um, and, and, and helping people start businesses in, in 2020. Like, it's pretty cool. It's, it's also, it's also, I, I just want to also point out in, an, in a day and age where it's all about accelerators and, and like reaping return. It's, it's, it's kind of nice to have um, this idea of like a, an interest-free loan just to, you know, we don't want equity. We just want you to succeed. Like we want, we want you to, to build a business for yourself and your family and, and, and the people that are going to work for you and, and support you and you support them. Like, that's really nice. It's, it's beautiful. The, the organization is, is so, is so critical and, and you hit the, the nail on the head, I think also by highlighting the fact that it's really not about equity and that these, these loans are, are no more really, you know, for, for personal loans there for coronavirus, um, it's $5,000 for businesses it's usually between 25,000 and 50,000 so it's it's small scale but that also allows the organization to deploy the loan capital to many more people and the organization has a 99% repayment rate that's um, unreal it, it's it's unmatched by other others in the industry i think because of the way that you know the loans are structured but also the the knowledge that that's incumbent upon the borrowers that they're giving back this money that ultimately is, is being recycled. Um, you know, it's set up in such a way that the borrowers made to understand that when they repay, they are literally helping a business owner or a family down the street. It's amazing. It's amazing. Wow. I, 
I, it literally amazes me. Um, so I, I think I think we probably have to wrap up soon because I feel like I, I feel like there's only a certain amount that people can actually like amount of time I, I would, can actually say I'm listening to me. People can listen to you for for hours. No, no, I, I think uh, I think some people may have fallen asleep when we discussed ancient Rome, but I know that you would talk about it with me for ages. But but I I I, I, I do think that we should hit on the last element of you know you you. you just to, to highlight for everyone, like you're a superstar, you're involved in a lot of different organizations outside of work and your hour and change, hour and a half commute to work, to and from work, which I also find amazing. Um, like you're on the board of Council of Young Jewish Presidents. You're, you, you did the UJA Shapiro Fellowship, which we, we, we are both alumni of that program. Um, but but I, I think that you know how how we really connected was was through our our Chabad and and our Chabad rabbi and you know I I guess I guess just to spend a, a couple of minutes on it before we end here like I, I would love to hear kind of your your take on how how you started connecting with Chabad because I know I know that you got involved with Chabad in, in college um, and just to give context for for anyone who may not know um, Chabad is a, a an international organization it's it's actually I believe the largest international Jewish organization in the world um, that that basically aims to provide community wherever any person who who's like who's Jewish may be um, and and to provide them a home away from home in some cases um, but in our case you know we, we have a Chabad rabbi on the Upper East Side, who, who, in, in some respects, maybe you know, at first it is a home away from home, but who who helps really create a, a home for us, and uh, you know, Chabad rabbis always like they always fascinate me, and and you know, one day I, I will have Ye on on the podcast um, as our, our rabbi, um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like what what connected you to Chabad in college, and and what do you think is the value of, of be, beyond being involved in a community, being involved in a community that, that has a, a spiritual focus? Like, what do, you, what do you think is the benefit for that in life? Amazing. I love that question. That's, that's, that, I love that question. Um, keep it brief. I was initially frightened, opposed, confused about being involved with Chabad at GW. And... I ultimately proved to myself that there was nothing to be concerned, frightened, or worried about. Rabbi Udi Steiner at GW was another one of my, is another one of my life mentors. And I found that it was a place where my Judaism could grow at a comfortable pace with inspiration, not only from the rabbi, but from the rest of the community. It wasn't just centered on a single figurehead. It was growing because it was being inspired by everyone else in the room. I was involved Throughout college, when I moved to uh, New York City on a Friday night for Bloomberg, I was starting on a Monday. My first night in the city was at Rabbi Yeye Wilhelm's house with his wife, Devora and his kids. I, I'm trying to remember how many kids he had at the time, but this was uh, 2014. So a few, a few probably, yeah, a, a fewer amount than he has today. Um, <laughs> and... I, I have found 
to answer that second part of the question, having gone through all this, having spent so much time doubting myself, having spent so much time searching for that acceptance, having found it, and then having seen what it was like to help others find it, there was something so like joyous and cathartic, almost to the point that I was getting to relive it myself again. And that, you know, without making it sound selfish about me getting my own pleasure, the root of it is I get so much satisfaction when I can find someone who, like me, wasn't in the community, was apprehensive, didn't necessarily know how to behave, and then bring them in, and then, and this is the best part, and then to see them thrive, and then to see them go on and bring other people in, that's, it's, it's, it's the deepest form of, of fulfillment I can have. And that, for me, is one of the biggest tenets of my Jewish spirituality, of, of bringing those in. Wow. Wow, I, I love that. And, you know, I, 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 think, I think what you're talking about, bring people in, um, I also share that, that, that same kind of passion and drive. And it, what, I, what I realized a few years ago, and it, it hit me, um, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but, but Rabbi A, he, he officiated my grandpa's synagogue. Um, and yeah, and it, was, it was extremely meaningful. And especially, you know, my, my dad has one sister, uh, and neither of them are particularly religious and, and neither of them, frankly, have, have a real relationship with, with a rabbi. And so, like, you know, it's like I'm one of four grandkids. And I, I, at the time, was really like the only person who had like a very significant relationship, you know, with, with a rabbi. And, and, and obviously that rabbi being, being yay, not that I don't have significant relationships with other rabbis. Don't want to <laughs> offend anyone right now. Don't want to offend anyone. Um, but but um, yay also is a great way of, of, of kind of, being just being at, at, yeah. at life life moments bris death whatever it may be like it it, it just all, all of these moments um are, are very significant in our lives happy and sad I, I think and i i had a realization afterwards where it's like it's so it's so valuable to have a strong relationship with a spiritual leader and again like like i said before i i think that these conversations it, it's beyond Jewish, Christian, Muslim, like, like having, having a strong role model, like having someone who, who in, in this case is really learned in, in how to celebrate and, and cherish life throughout life because they're constantly doing it, right? Like they're experts in that. They know how to, rabbis know how to deal with grieving. They know how to deal with joy also, but, um, but having, having a meaningful relationship with, with, with a, a clergy member, I, I really realized after that was, was, is, it was, and, and is so significant. And, and I feel like it, it helped shape me. I mean, obviously I was very involved before, but it really made, put a spin out of like every time that I'm able to help connect someone with, with, within a community like this or to any other community that's similar. It, it, I really, I, I think about that element of like help, helping people sometimes who, who don't have that connection like me, me or you have, and, and that has become so innate to us. Um, but, but helping them realize that, you know, you don't have to be quote unquote religious or, 
or you don't have to be from a certain background to, to, to have a strong spiritual guide and influence in your life. And you don't have to necessarily agree or think exactly like that person does. Um, but you can appreciate the fact that they have this vast knowledge base and they have this ability. Um, and, 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 uh, and, and, and I think it, it really, for me, like it, it, it really, it almost brings tears to my eyes. Like thinking about it, it's like, it's, it's, it's so meaningful. And, and, you know, I, I, the work that you do uh, with, with, with Chabad, with, with all, all these things, it's, it's really like, uh, I, I really, I really admire it. And I, I cannot wait. I, I know we always joke about it, but like, you know, I can't wait to see the next level of like, you know, going on to be the, bo the board chair of, of this organization or that organization, like seeing you take up, like continually self-actualize, right? Like push yourself into that discomfort zone. Um, I, I, I really, I really think uh, you, you have a lot of, a lot of big things ahead for you. And, uh, and that, that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast to tell your story. Cause I think it's an amazing story and it's, there, there's so much left untold. And uh, I, I really appreciate you, you taking the time to come on. I want to thank you for letting me ramble, for letting me, for letting me self-actualize. I want to thank you for asking, you know, these, these critical questions that are so, you know, deep and foundational. Um, and really throughout your podcast, the reason why your podcast is great, Andy, is, is because you take the time to ask people the most fundamental questions about themselves that they don't have the chance to express with other people. And you and I are fortunate because we have these conversations on a random Tuesday. But you know, the, the beauty of, of what you're doing now is you're letting all of these rising titans really reveal and, and show a piece of themselves. And, that, and, and uh, I, I wish for rising titans to rise, thrive, and grow. And I want to reiterate what I first said, which is one day I will hope and do hope you will consider allowing someone to interview you. And we will oh, wow. interview the rising titan. Wow, wow, wow. I, I, I appreciate that. For your consideration. For your consideration. I, I appreciate it. I really do. Um, listen, Mr. Zafrin, you, you, my friend, are a rising titan. Thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs>